this morning. It comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a warning against drifting away. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience is punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? Thank you. You may be seated. is better. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what Hebrews is about. That's what it's, the writer wanted us to know. God wanted us to know through the writer of Hebrews. <sighs> wow, I'm here. Um, it's, yes, it's been a journey. Um, today's message has become a God story for me in many ways. Um, this this season, these past few months have been a real challenging time for me and my family. Um, in May, my brother passed away suddenly. As we were preparing to go to his memorial, we had to put our beloved yellow lab down. And uh, I was trying to be strong through my brother's passing, but when, uh, when we had to put Bella down, that just broke me. Um, at that time, I just was telling Amy, we need to get away. And uh, I had a particular week in the month of July that I could see that I thought my schedule would afford us time to get away. And summer is a challenging time for me to be off work, and, uh, but we just really needed it. And uh, I couldn't find. We, I, we had the desire. Um, we found the time, but I couldn't find a place for us to go. And I kept looking, and everything was booked, and, or it just wasn't working out. And um, we had attended a, a Christian family camp in Montana about 18 years ago with our son when he was nine years old. And uh, if somehow that popped into my head, and I called them, and they said, you know what, typically we're booked, but we just had somebody cancel. So with that, I knew God is opening a door. So we booked that, and this was in June, early June, I think. And um, then on July 1st, I got a call from the care facility my mom was at. She had had a stroke and was being transported to Central, Val or Central Washington Hospital. So I got down there into the ER. The doctor came in and he said, John, it's not good. She's not going to live through this. It's a matter of moments or days, but she, her days are, are ending. So we made her as comfortable as we could. And on July 3rd, which was my late father's birthday, um, holding her hand, holding her hand, playing uh, um, gospel hymns that she was familiar with, she passed away. Okay, I'm good. Um, so 
something that I had never experienced through this time was becoming overwhelmed. All that to, again, circle back to this. Today's message has become a God story for me. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who are struggling with remaining in their faith in Jesus. It still has relevance and meaning to believers of today. Are we gonna hold on to that knowledge that we have in Jesus? Are we gonna trust him as we face the trials and challenges? Is it more than just coming to a gathering on Sunday morning, singing songs, praying, taking communion, all of those things which are good, those traditions and rituals are good, but there has to be more to our faith. It has to live in us. Amen? Amen. So faced with the trials and struggles, they were tempted to return to the societal accepted lifestyle of their day, of the traditions and rituals, leaving the relationship with Jesus that they had been given behind. That was the meaning and purpose of why the author of Hebrews wrote what he did. And each chapter builds upon the previous to make the argument as to why Jesus is better than all of the other things that we can surround ourselves and our lives with, both religious, temporal, material, worldly, things. And so that's, um, that's what the writer is getting at. Don't the pressures of this life today tempt us to compromise our faith as well when we challenge those things. We can forget the primary things we say, you know, as a last resort, let's pray. And actually, it's, that should be the first thing that we do is when we're facing the challenges of, of this life, the first thing we need to do is remember our faith, our hope, our trust is in Christ alone. So Hebrews 1 established the proper context to look at chapter 2. In verses 1 through 3, the supremacy, and this is chapter 1, the supremacy of God's Son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Revelation 4, 6 through 11. I'm gonna hang on. So studying this, getting it inside my heart and my mind, and just uh, all of the commentary and other things. And when we went to camp, the, the pastor that was there, the speaker is a pastor from California, and he did a chapel in the morning and the evening every day. And I realized as we got there to the first chapel why God had ordained us to be there because he was speaking exactly into this, remembering who God is, remembering who Jesus Christ is. And it was amazing. 
because I came emotionally on empty. I was so overwhelmed and I knew I had this message to give on chapter two and I couldn't get to it. And at times I thought I need to call Scott and let him know I just can't do it. I just have, I, I just can't get there. And as we got into camp and I realized God had, he knew, he knew what was gonna happen. And he brought us, he brought me through to this point in time where by the end of the week, I was changed. I was ministered to. It was just awesome. So back to this. We have this statement in chapter one of who Jesus is. He is the most high, the glorious reflection of God's glory in nature. Revelation 4, 6 through 11 expands on our understanding and perception of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. Excuse me, where'd the tissues go? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Continuing on. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 20 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Imagine if you were sitting, excuse me, if you were, this is why I have it written down. Imagine if you were standing and seeing what John is describing. How holy and awesome and great and powerful is our Messiah. He is worthy of all our praise and adoration. Amen? Amen. Some of the time, we feel, when we feel good, or all of the time, regardless of what is happening, he is worthy of all our praise and adoration. Who else radiates the glory of the Father? Who else is the exact imprint or reflection or embodiment of the nature of the Father? Who else created all things? Who holds all created things together by the word of his power? Dwight and I were talking this week about that part. And when we think, you know, when they, so science, the further they dive into the creation, the more they've, the deeper the details go, but they still have that challenge as to what's holding it all together. 
what's holding the nucleus together? I'm not a scientist, I can't explain it. I could have Dwight come up and, and reiterate all of this, but there's, there's an unseen, unknown force that holds it all together. And if we didn't have that holding us together, we would just basically vaporize. You know, it's just astounding. Who or what has saved us from the penalty of our sins but Jesus? Who else has sat down at the right hand of the Father on the throne of heaven? Who else has been called Son of the Most High God? Jesus is who has done all these things and has saved and redeemed us according to the will of the Father, but not remotely or with indifference to the challenges and struggles we face or the first century Christians that the Hebrews was written for. He, Jesus, has taken on flesh as part of this plan of salvation. Why would God have him do this? And how is it that such a divine and perfect being would leave his place in the eternal realm to do this for us. Now we're ready to begin looking at chapter two. So that's building the framework, the basis of where we're gonna go. So the scripture this morning was uh, chapter two, verses one through three. We're gonna actually skip over the first four verses and we're gonna start in verse five, but we're gonna come back to one through four. And... uh, when I first started looking at this and it first started, God, the Holy Spirit started working in me, I couldn't get past verses one through four. And I thought, this message this morning may only be verses one through four. But God gave me away. He said, just leave that behind, come back to it. So we're gonna keep building on who Jesus is as we, start, as we look through chapter two. Starting in verses five through eight, the founder of salvation For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Let me repeat that. He left nothing outside of Jesus' control. Amen? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 5, he has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. God never gave angels the kind of dominion man originally had over the earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Angels do not have dominion over this world or the world to come. Chapter 1, the writer demonstrates Jesus is superior to the angels. Here in chapter 2, the writer is demonstrating the implications of Jesus' humanity. We are to learn and understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Human nature was added to his divine nature and that both natures existed in the person of Jesus fully. Let's try and get our minds around what is being described here in verse nine. Jesus, who has never sinned, will suffer death, which is the consequence of sin. 
not merited by his own lifestyle or actions, God himself will die for the sins of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived in this world, including each one of us. Verse 9 ends with this, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, the most divine and holy, fully God and fully man, suffered death for us and was pleased to do it. Why? In order to be fully connected with us in humanity. Verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. If Jesus never walked as a man, faced the trials, struggles, and challenges which all of us face, if he was never tempted or suffered in any way, there would be something missing in the connection with us, wouldn't there? So how is Jesus made perfect through his own suffering? What is the writer meaning perfect through suffering? I believe the perfecting which is being described here is found in verse 11. The suffering which Jesus experienced on our behalf connected him fully with his humanity and then with all mankind. The sanctification and salvation in Jesus is both physical and spiritual in the connecting it does in and through us in ways beyond our comprehension as it said, stated in chapter one, held together by the power of his word. Amen. God's love for us showed itself in sacrifice. God's love for us cost him something, didn't it? God added humanity to his deity, his divine and holy deity, and suffered and experienced death on our behalf for us. Verse 11 is making a very powerful statement to this work of Jesus and the impact it has on those who believe. The calling them brothers is evidence of this transformative power that comes out of Jesus' suffering and then sanctification of those who believe. That's us. Can you see what the writer's getting at here? God is offering so much more than tradition and ritual now. He is offering adoption and relationship like Adam experienced in the garden. And it is eternal forever. Jesus connecting himself to us as brothers is only possible through the humanity, the flesh, he took on to bring us all into the same family. Verses 12 through 14 echo back to the verses of chapter one. Jesus himself is pronouncing the love, mercy, and grace of God most high. Now to us, his brothers and sisters, who God has given him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He, Jesus, likes to dwell on that fact. We are precious to him in ourselves, but far more precious as the Father's gift to him, Jesus. Some things are valued by you as keepsakes given by one you love. And so are we, dear to Christ, 
because his father gave us to him. So how loved, valued, and desired are you? What is God saying about how important you are to him? This world, I'm deviating off my written text here, this world wants to tell us so many things about who we are or who we are not. And we have to decide, what is it that we're going to believe? Are we going to believe the things that this world says and hold them as truth? Or are we going to hold the things that God has said through his word as true and overriding all other things? Who have you been given to by the Father? We tend to forget this often, don't we? Verses 15, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear, excuse me, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Lucifer, or Satan, as he is called elsewhere in Scripture. Satan repeatedly tried to kill Jesus from his birth. Remember, through King Herod, the synagogue where they tried to kill him and he just walked out from their midst. Nothing worked until he, Jesus, stood before Pilate and received or accepted the sentence of execution. But even in that moment, Satan did not have the power over Jesus. Amen. He, Jesus, laid it down of his own accord. No one, including Satan, took it from him. John 10, 17 and 18. So the power of death did not apply to Jesus, did it? Why? It is said that Satan's right to rule over man was presumably given him in the Garden of Eden through Adam's rebellion. When sin entered man, then man became subject to the power of the one who caused him to sin. The act of rebelling against God's command placed him under the power and the authority of that which he listened to and obeyed in the act, Satan. Does that make sense? We relinquished, through Adam, we relinquished that dominion and that authority and that power that God had created man to possess and hold in this world. And when we, and how we relinquish that is by listening to the deceitful, lying, perversion of Satan, of Lucifer, who then, when we were subjected under that by believing it and following it, we relinquished and subjugated that authority to him who he then rules over us with. And that you can find, and I get to it too here, but Ephesians chapter 2 talks about we were born into, under that wrath, under the wrath of God, into the sin, and under the rule and dominion of the power, or the, the prince of this world, Satan himself. So we only have two options here. And that one we're born into by default. So, and that act subjected the line of Adam, his children, us, under that same power and authority, but Jesus was not born into that line of Adam. 
and therefore was not under the authority of Satan. As is described in Ephesians 2, he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. God himself is the father of Jesus, not Adam. And we see that again in Hebrews chapter 1, describing that. Satan only has or had authority which he took from Adam, so it did not apply to or have power over Jesus. In fact, I believe that when Jesus surrendered himself to the cross for us and allowed the devices and purposes of Satan to produce death to his humanity, this was an illegal act of Satan. He had no authority or power to do that. But Satan's hatred of God and his desire to elevate himself above God clouded his understanding and caused him, Satan, to overstep the authority and power he had taken from Adam. This act of Satan broke that authority, that power and authority, for those of us who are aligned under the overriding and supreme power and authority of Jesus, our brother. Amen? Amen? What is it that you fear? Again, this section, this passage, these couple of verses here are talking about Jesus breaking the power of death, destroying Satan, and freeing us from a lifelong bondage of fear of death. It says, death, where's your sting? Jesus broke that power and authority. That fear... Fear can rule and govern and drive and direct our lives in ways that is wicked and talk about suffering. It's just, it can be awful. And the whole idea is to get us to take our eyes off of Jesus, isn't it? So what is it that you fear? Here are some quotes from Charles Spurgeon. The disease of fear came into man's heart with sin. Adam never was afraid of his God until he broke his commandments. Half our fears are the result of ignorance, and half our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. It is not what we see that we dread, so much as that which we do not see and therefore exaggerate. As for me, I have braved the sneer of men because I feared the frown of my Lord. That's Charles Spurgeon. So I started with talking about the challenges of this season in life. And I know we all are facing different things in this life. When it came to being there in the hospital with my mother, Amy and I, trying to comfort her and care for her, knowing the inevitable is coming. What the Holy Spirit spoke to me, I think us, because we both started doing it, was comforting her, not just by being there, but stroking her hair, holding her hand, and telling her, don't be afraid. You're in Christ. You have, she had Alzheimer's, and the last seven years of her life were a challenge for any sort of consistent mental clarity and understanding of things. But one of the things that we found right here towards the end was when we started playing, I found an Alan Jackson gospel uh, on my phone and we'd sit down with mom and we'd play it. 
and those old gospel hymns, she would start singing them. And it would bring peace to her. So we're playing those. We're, we're just loving on her. And at the same time telling her, Mom, you have nothing to be afraid of. You're in Christ. There's no fear of death here. And we could see her become more and more peaceful. Um, and like I say, it's, it's an incredible awesome privilege. I had never experienced it until sitting there with mom when she breathed her last. And to know at that moment, she stepped from this life of humanity and flesh across the threshold and is seeing Jesus eye to eye. And all of those trials and struggles that she faced are now behind her. And I faced those. When she was diagnosed and, we, and I call it, she fell off the edge of the world. I cried out to God, God, where's your mercy? This is one of your children. How, that just watching the devastating disease that dementia is. Where's your mercy, God? And for several months, I would just, when I'd pray and I'd think about my mom, I would ask God that. And one day, I got the answer. And it came pretty profoundly, and the Holy Spirit just spoke into my heart. John, do you think I've forgotten your mother's name? Do you think I don't know where she is? And my answer was, no, Lord, no, I know. I know you know. I'm just trying to understand how your grace and your mercy works. And he said, you're just going to have to trust me. So this whole time, this whole season, this whole path, and to see her come to the end of her days and to let go and go to be with Jesus. Oh, what a privilege. To know that certainty. There was no fear. There was no apprehension. There was no un- misunderstanding about she's lost. She's not lost. She is found. She's in Christ. Nothing to fear. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, had to make, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. What is the writer stating in verse 16? God the Father's act in and through Jesus is not to help the angels, but the seed of Abraham. There is no intermediary, angel, priest, anyone. God established our intermediary, and that is Jesus Christ himself, the Most High. This work done by God through Jesus was done solely for mankind, you and me, our families and friends, the entire world of people, including those who do not know this good news and those who have heard and rejected the gospel. It's for everyone. The angels in heaven marvel at the work of God in this act of his great salvation. Now to be clear, this great salvation is offered to all, everyone in the whole world, but only those who believe, who put their faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ enter into adoption and relationship with God. Do you believe this? Verse 17 lays it out pretty clear here, doesn't it? The humanity of Jesus connects him to us personally and eternally, and in so doing, he is able to understand our weakness and struggle in our faith, trust, and walk in him. And likewise, we too can have that depth of understanding in him if we will pursue it faithfully, trusting beyond our own thoughts and walking continually in that faith and trust. Okay, I finished the introduction. So now we're going back to verses one through four. Warning against neglecting salvation. And hopefully this makes sense now as to why I felt inclined to hold off on those first four verses. We needed to lay out this expanded framework. This is our part. Starting in verse one. Therefore, we must take heed or pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. We can present that, present the gospel, and there's people who say, that's cool for you, but I want a different way. I don't want the way that you're laying out. There's got to be different ways. And we see that in various religions and, and um, doctrines that there's many ways to God. No, there isn't. There truly isn't. And it, it makes that very clear here. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Greek word for heed has a nautical or marine term. And I'll beat up the Greek because I don't know it. Pros, heck, Prosecchio, meaning to moor or anchor a ship, bring it to land. We are being called to secure ourselves to Jesus, to anchor our faith and trust in him alone and nothing else. The Greek word for drift is par arhurio, something like that, (laughs) which also has a nautical connotation. It can be used for a ship which is waiting to be moored or anchored but drifts away because of inaction. So if by our own inaction and lack of anchoring ourselves to the knowledge of Jesus, being made secure in that, then we are going to do what? We're going to drift. Not maybe, but actually going to drift, and we're going to drift away from him. If we're drifting away from this great salvation we have in Jesus Christ, then we're drifting towards something, aren't we? I mean, just the very act of drifting means we're drifting away from, but we're drifting towards something else. What is it that we drift towards? Ephesians 2 tells us that we were born under the power and authority of the prince of this world, Satan. There is no middle ground. We cannot hold to the salvation of Jesus and the things of this world. 
we will drift from one to the other. We will either hold to the truth of Jesus or be led to believe the deceptive truth of this world. Like oil and water, they do not blend, and we are only deceiving ourselves to think that we are the person who has finally found a way to make them blend. So what is the picture of drifting the Holy Spirit is painting in your mind as we look at this scripture? Okay, one more Greek word for us to look at here. Neglect, as, as it is used in verse three. Amaleo. It means to take lightly. They do not know how serious the decision is. James 1, through 25 states it this way. Obey the word of God. If you hear only and do not act, you are only fooling yourself. Anyone who hears the word of God and does not obey it is like a man looking at his face in a mirror. After he sees himself and goes away, he forgets what he looks like. But the one who keeps looking into God's perfect law or his word and does not forget it will do what it says. And this is an interesting statement here. And be happy as he does it. God's word makes men free. Isn't that interesting? It, it, it adds in that, and be happy as he does it. You know, we know the world, that's the big thing. Well, are you happy? Are you happy in your life, in your job, in your marriage, in your school, wherever? Are you happy? Because happiness is the most important thing Amen. as far as the world's concerned. And I've really, am quite astounded that it describes those who seek after and follow and act upon the word of God, bringing it into their lives, in doing so, can be happy as we do it. Amen. Amen. So how important is salvation in Jesus to us? We have seen how important it is to the Father. We've seen how important it is to Jesus. He came and laid down his life in order to provide it to us. We have been transformed by it, but do we neglect it and therefore drift from the security it would provide? And where are we drifting when we neglect our salvation? Another term used in scripture is indifference. Are we acting with indifference to a life lived because of salvation? In closing, allow me to read this quote from Matthew Henry. It is the great concern of everyone under the gospel to give the most earnest heed to it, to prize them highly in his judgment as matters of greatest importance, to hearken to them diligently, to read them frequently, the daily reading of God's word, to meditate on them closely and to mix faith with them. We must embrace them in our hearts and affections, retain them in our memories, and finally, regulate our words and actions according to them. Our life, what we see, what others see in us is a reflection of that. And for great is the loss we shall sustain if we do not take this earnest heed to the things which we have heard. We shall let them slip. They will leak and run out of our heads, lips, and lives. And we shall be the great losers by our neglect. Our minds and memories are like a leaky vessel. They do not, without much care, retain what is poured into them. 
Don't let the truth and greatness of this salvation in Jesus leak out by neglect. Let it overflow from the volume of truth in God's word you are taking in, and then the world around you will know whose child you are. Um, the picture that just came into my mind as I'm reading this is, and as we look back on those Greek words of being moored or anchored and or drifting away, and that we're, our, that if we're not careful, the truth of that great salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ will leak and run out of our heads and our lips and our lives. That our minds and our memories are like a leaky vessel. Imagine, if you will, a ship moored, anchored at the dock, sinking. It has that security, that mooring there. But through neglect, of the hull of that vessel, it starts leaking and taking in water. And it just sinks right there, right at the very place where everything that could be done to help sustain it and maintain it are available. And yet through neglect, it's just allowed to, to sink. So that's all I got. Um, any questions? Any corrections? We need to take a, a, a letter to Scott to go over anything here. Um, yes, Dwight. So this has been a, a personal struggle for me in, in reading Hebrews. I believe in eternal security. And there's a lot of talk here about drifting away and neglecting your salvation. How does that work? How does the drifting away work, or how does the maintaining security? We've kind of got two things that are going in different directions, and yet I don't think they're quite going in different directions. Maybe you could just expound on that. Sure. So, again, back into looking at the historical content of Hebrews, and specifically chapter 2 here, the writer is trying to encourage... He's not speaking with condemnation, but encouragement to those who are struggling with what is this salvation about? Because I have been ostracized by my community, by my society. I'm not welcome in the temple of my God any longer. I can't bring this relationship that I have in Jesus Christ with me. What is more important? And when we're looking at things in the physical sense, you know, the comfort, the ease, and um, security that we want to find in this physical world, all of that is being placed in jeopardy by this faith in Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so they're seeing, obviously, they're seeing something happening in their, the community of believers here that, you know, imagine, again, taking this and reflecting back on, we went through the book of Acts, and it talks about all of these great multitudes coming to salvation in Jesus Christ, and then initially, and the power of the Holy Spirit is working, and they're seeing great things, and, and people are being empowered to speak great things, and then the day-to-day -day starts rolling in, and it's like, I can't go to Uncle Bob's house anymore. He's told me I'm not welcome. And I used to go there every Sunday for dinner. And now I'm not welcome there because I've taken on this Jesus thing. 
And they're saying, go back to the traditions, go back to the rituals, come back into this and deny who Jesus is and you're welcome back into the community. So is there a challenge and a struggle? I mean, this is a, this is a theocratic society. This is, it's political correctness at its core in those people in that time. And uh, I, what comes to my mind is I did a, uh, a remodel for a Jewish family, wonderful Jewish family on Mercer Island years ago and got to know them real well and their, their adult children and grandchildren and whatnot. And there was, I was talking with, with the wife and she, was, she knew I was a Christian and she was pleased that I had a faith and we were kind of going back and forth about the difference between Judaism and Christianity and she said, well, our daughter-in-law was once a Christian, but she decided that as she came into this family and wanting to be part of this family, she became a Jew. And, in, and she described the whole process of when a Christian becomes a Jew, they have to renounce their faith in Christ to do it. And so it's a similar thing that's going on here at this time when the... the book of Hebrews was written. So the grounding of, again, how I started this morning, Jesus is better, amen? That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at through the whole course of the book. Jesus is the better. We're looking at the difference between a relationship and the types and shadows of tradition and ritual. And we have that we have our order of service and our we read the creed but we don't look at any of this as being the salvific part of our walk with the lord if you come here every sunday and you think being here or being in any church service anywhere is going to be what gets you through the pearly gates you're going to be sadly mistaken and at that point when you realize it there will be no alternative path for you. You're either in, in Jesus Christ, or you're out, and there's no other middle ground to it. Have I, did I, because I can go on. Okay. <laughs> All right, anything else? Glenn. It has to be a part, how do I make this gospel real in my life? And it's not just about cracking open the Bible every day. Um, for me, it, it came over a course of many, many years, and Amy can attest to this, of continuing to surrender. And the surrendering was my will, my attitude, my thoughts, my opinions, on every situation, and God just, because I'm a hard-headed guy, God just continued to throw situations in front of me where then I would hear the Holy Spirit speaking in the back of my mind. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna do what you think, or are you gonna surrender this to me? Amen. So when I had the Holy and I desired that, I kept praying, God, change me, change my heart, change my way of thinking, Make me 
a man that seeks after you. I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. I've seen what that does. It's not good. Yeah. And so he honored that desire. And he put those challenging situations in my path and then would question me on what am I going to do? Remember, John, you said you wanted to be changed. So here's, her, here's an opportunity to change. Stop thinking. Don't act the way that you're planning on acting. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it was post-action that I realized I had just done what I didn't want to do. But th- with that, happening with God stirring in my heart and my mind at the same time studying his word reading the truth of what he is calling us to be then that's where those okay if I'm not thinking my own thoughts and doing my own you know going my own way what is it that I am going to be doing and that's where the word of God comes in because God gives us a better way so it's a life lived in... in it's a daily process. Amen. Amen. Yes. Okay? Can we, can we do God stories right now? Would that be all right? Or do you want to... Let's do God stories. Okay. Sorry, we're just throwing it all out here today. So, before we forget, are there any God stories... So mine is more of an update just um, to let you all know how things are going with my dad. Excuse me. Um, So a few weeks back, I told you that my dad had been having kidney problems. Well, come to find out, it wasn't actually his kidney. It was just kind of a muscle ache or anything like that. So thank you, Lord, for not having him go through a kidney problem. But in the process, they found a spot on his lung. And so now we're just praying and hoping that that spot is just what they call valley fever. Which for those that go down to Arizona every year or in the southern desert area, a lot of people get this. And sometimes it presents itself and it um, can make them really sick, like the flu, a lot of coughing. And my mom actually has a spot on her lung from all their time down there. But as long as you don't touch it and you leave it alone, and you pray a lot, it'll be fine. The unfortunate part is we, he has to go back in in October to make sure that that's what it is. So I'm just asking for a lot of prayers for him. Um, and to let Lois know, which I know she already knows because my pharmacist told her, but yes, I did get the motorcycle. I have been out on some rides. And I'm having a great time. So on a lighter note, but please do pray for my dad. Um, just to make sure that it is what it is. Anyone else? Okay, thank you.